And here in Detroit, where so many of the tools of victory were turned out, it's in the air. All Detroit wants another kind of victory. They're out to see the Detroit Tigers, their favorite ball team. Let's go inside. You're listening to Tigers SRD with your hosts and former Little League All-Stars, Chris Brown and Roger Castillo. Welcome to another episode of Tigers SRD on the Tiger Mind Report Network. And of course, find us on demand at sportsreviewdetroit.com. I'm Roger Castillo. I'm Chris Brown. And tonight, we are not doing the movie review. We're kind of taking a week off that. Link Chris recovered from his... Massive mock draft. You can find it on the Tiger Minor League Report dot com on the front page. All five rounds, all thirty teams involved with that, and we'll get to a little bit about the behind the scenes stuff and what have you involved in the draft in a little while. Tonight we'll be talking about the nineteen ninety eight San nineteen ninety eight San Diego Padres, as Tony Gwynn's birthday was on May 9th. So we wanted to celebrate in honor of one of the best hitters of all time. Some really Crazy stats. Chris will be covering the hitters this evening, and I'll be covering the pitchers for a team that really, to me, it, it was just uh, the way that whole World Series went down against the Yankees. We'll talk a little more about that. Some news around baseball that it looks like it's heading to a possible return. Players, some bad math with the owners, and all sorts of nonsense with that stuff. So fair warning to everybody who's listening online, by the way, there will be some... There'll be some swearing, but it'll be uh, there'll be some rants, if you will. But there'll be censored swearing. But uh, yeah, either way. And everybody, uh, I did get some comments about the Brian Payne interview I did. Thank you. I really appreciate it. The Spanish was nerve wracking a little bit, to be honest. But Brian Payne was such a cool interview. He was, he was such a great guy. And Jay Markle holding it down as a straight man, which is which is cool because he jay plays that role very well in terms of just like he just asks the questions he goes in and out mm-hmm. and we did and he also had to set up this interview so nice yeah it was it went really smooth so but how's your week off been chris i mean what were you uh what were you doing this week uh it was fine you know it's 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 been raining so much that it's kind of hard to do much of anything but we've been hanging out i was telling you uh my wife uh she likes to find deals on the Facebook and uh, she apparently found an anthropology coat. I don't know anything. I, I've heard of the the brand or the store or whatever. Anthropology seems to be spelled wrong, but whatever. Uh, it's like a $500 coat. She found it for like 10 bucks, but it was in Grand Rapids. So she's, she told me on Saturday night, like, Oh, by the way, uh, one of us needs to go to Grand Rapids tomorrow. I'm like, what? Uh, so I just, I volunteered to do it cause it's a drive I've made probably like a dozen times now going out to the Whitecaps games. Uh, and I went out and got it and man, what a swanky neighborhood that was in. This is how you know that somebody is, uh, somebody can sell a $500 coat for $10 cause it was like a million dollar house. And I was exploring around looking at the other houses around there. It was by Calvin university or Calvin college or whatever it's called. And yeah, house down the road is, was is selling for six and a half million dollars. It was like, oh, my God, look at this thing. This is like straight out of Gatsby. Um, But in any event, so I went and got the coat, and then I was getting kind of hungry. It was around noon, and I was driving back. I I had reached, I think, Kent or Portland, somewhere, and I realized, oh, I don't have my wallet. Outstanding. And I knew I'd brought it with me, so but I called my wife and was like, hey, did you see my wallet everywhere? And she said no. 
she contacted the woman in Grand Rapids and found out that it was in her driveway. So I had to turn back around and go back to Grand Rapids and then come back home. So it was like a five-hour trip for me to get a coat. But uh, it looks nice on my wife. So that's basically what I've been doing, driving around. Went and got some ferns on Saturday night down in Ann Arbor. So that was another hour of my time. So between the ferns, the Chris Brown is a show yeah. that we should expect coming out exactly. soon. Yeah. I got the, I, my beard is full of Galifianakis at this point. Yeah. my uh, It was funny. <laughs> I was hanging out with my brother the other day, and I wearing a ball cap, and I was helping to cut my dad's lawn, and we're just getting some uh, – he goes, you know, you realize you look like an 80s reliever right now? And that's when I sent you guys a picture of me and Lamar. In 1983, Cy Young Award winner Lamar Hoyt comparison because the beard and the, the whole yeah. – <laughs> the how hair is working. And honestly, I think I managed my hair to the point now where all I have to do is really take a shower, wash it, like – it's in terms of manageability. If I'm going to put a hand on it, I can come back and I'm fine. <laughs> Manageability. That's one of those phrases you always hear in like shampoo commercials. Yeah. And you, you, like, <laughs> just, I guess that makes more sense. But there are certain phrases you always hear, like with uh, with beer commercials, they're always talking about a finish. Like, what what the hell is the finish of the beer? The smooth finish of, yeah. The yeah, what is the finish? You take a drink and then go, hmm, I'm finished. Like, what? <laughs> I don't get it. Is it the aftertaste? Yeah, it's I don't know, whatever. Yeah, it's the uh, palate cleanser. It's usually what they say, like the smooth finish. Of you know, it, 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 I think sometimes when it comes to food and drink, I think we mm-hmm. make it sound more complicated than it has to be, so we sound smart. So that's what I noticed yeah. about that. Like, oh, the it fully embodies the, the full texture. Well, is it good or does it taste bad? That's all I want to know. Do I need yeah, to know I, the robustness <laughs> of something? No, I don't. I really don't. Sorry, I don't care. Yeah. And most of my finishes when I was drinking were not smooth at all. It didn't involve <laughs> me passing out somewhere, throwing up in the back of somebody's car, ending up in a city I didn't fall asleep in. <laughs> no, it's one thing to like say like a vanilla porter ad, like okay, so there's the, the the vanilla is strong or whatever like that. If it's something you're describing a beer about, that's one thing. But to, I don't know, it, it seems a little nitpicky to me about what the beer tastes or if it's a strong finish or not. Anyway, but yeah, uh, the management manageable hair. Manageable hair is something I used to heard, I think, in Pert. Is it Pert? That shampoo. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Pert commercials. And I never thought in a million years I used that terminology, but it's true. Like, I just literally wash my hair, and this is not a hair, it's not a grooming podcast, folks, but just keep in mind <laughs> that until the Tigers actually start playing, which is, looks like it might be possible. We'll get to that in a second. It is, you talk about the crosstalk before we get to the meat and potatoes. This is it, folks. I mean, like I, like I just got, I did get Super Mega Baseball 3 for PS4. I did oh, get nice. that. That is a sweet game. They've done a really, really good job. Hey, can you play online? Yeah. Oh, all right. Um, so, we just, uh, you know, Harrison's been playing Minecraft a ton, and his buddy uh, just got it. So we finally bought the uh, PlayStation Plus. So we're online now. So I might as well get something I can play. Yeah. Dude, we should play. I definitely want to. We should do a. We should. Somebody on Twitter, I can't remember who it was. I think it was Maver- or Ghost Maverick, one of the guys at Twitter, and Adam uh, Dubn over at Bless You Boys were talking about doing, starting an online league. And I, I'd be down. I mean, if anybody mm-hmm. wants to start an online league for Super, Super Mega Baseball 3, let us know. I'm, I'm down to do that because I don't like the show. I will, I will tell you this right now, Chris. I, I, I mm-hmm. bought every version of it until a couple of years ago. I didn't like it. And I just wanted something where it was simple, basic to play, but it had some like robust features. And Super Mega Baseball 2, which 
you don't remember recommending to me, but you did. Oh, all right. And you were talking about baseball games, and so I got Super Mega Baseball 2. I love that game, but 3 improves on everything. It, it, you have a franchise mode now where the players age, and they in there's like a salary cap and all that, so you get to spend on players. You get fully customizable teams. So my team is basically in a 10-team league, all cities in Downriver and Wayne because I'm bored. <laughs> And so, you know, like yeah. the customization of the jerseys, the players. Woodhaven and Wyandotte. Yep. I'm the Riverview Blue Jays right now. So my division has a bunch of teams. Just just for, like I said, just for S and Giggles, I just n- named the team and went from there. I didn't want to go to my hometown. I didn't want to go with hometown Dearborn because it just seemed too obvious. So mm-hmm. not to mention it's kind of lame. But at any rate, there, Dearborn it does, it does have a team, though. But regardless... It is pretty cool to have that. It's just a simple game you can play, pick up and play, and that's what I hate about the show. Like it's just it's one of those things where the show, some of the mechanics are just seem. I don't know, man. It it just seems like it's really. Yeah, I mean, you, you see that it's one of the the pitfalls of an annual sports game is they always have to add something new every year, and a lot of times it just seems superfluous. Like I remember. What was the year that Madden added the quarterback vision cone? It's like, oh, I have to change which way the quarterback's looking. I can't make no look passes on the sideline anymore. What fun is that? Like, it's always in the pursuit of more realistic stuff, and that's not necessarily what people want. I mean, it's everybody, I think, like, like likes deeper features, like you said, franchise mode and stuff. Um, and basically every game is some form of role-playing game now where, you, you know, you've got a character and you're progressing and getting better, but one of the problems with the show is always like it's it's they've tried to address it a bunch of times, but playing games takes a long time. It takes like an hour to play one baseball game. You know, you could set it to like three innings or whatever, but uh, so it's, it's, yeah, it's more fun to just have the kind of fast paced baseball action that we liked when we were growing up, the RBI baseballs and baseball stars, baseball simulator and stuff like that. And and it has those elements in there. And that's what I like about the game. It's really just a matter of getting your team together and pick up the controls pretty quick and, getting down the power swing, stuff like that, which the mechanics on it's really good. The slider looks like a slider, and it's not like you, you throw a pitch that you think is outrageous and they hit it out of the ballpark. They have to earn it. And mm-hmm. so, if a talent, for example, if the, what's, what's cool about three is the players, certain players have certain traits. So there might be one that's a low ball hitter or hits better than against lefties. So if you're a left-handed pitcher, you have to pitch accordingly. So mm-hmm. it does a really good job with that. Yeah, and honestly, it's well worth the money and I'm still also playing a lot of 2020 uh, or out of the park baseball 2021. So baseball is around me all the time. Yeah. And we have a new sponsor this week and it's uh Oh, it's super mega baseball three. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it sounds good. I'm going to, I'll give it a try. Yeah. Do you do it? Yeah. And that way we can play against each other. You were actually, you were a pitcher on my old team, by the way, you were a, oh, really? you, yeah, you were, you didn't have the beard though. You, you were Was it a junk baller. You were a junk baller. Yes, you were. Yeah. You son of a bitch! I'd be out there fireballing. Well, what it was that you down your throat. I needed a lefty, and I didn't. I was oh. like, "Well, you know, Chris is. Uh, I'll put you put you as a lefty. You're you you actually led the, my team in innings thrown. So there you go. Oh, you know, uh, a workhorse. I'll do it. I probably would be a junk baller with my left hand. It was funny too because he had a really good curveball. Like he had a good twelve six curveball. But you know, it wouldn't shock me if it's easier to learn a curveball with your offhand just because. Um, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it's it's you. It's like they say when when you uh, 
when you're drawing stuff, sometimes it's better to try to draw it upside down so you don't actually see the thing. You just are drawing the shapes and the lines. Might be easier just because you're not used to throwing left-handed that you can fix the grip better. But I don't know. Probably talking out of my A double S. <laughs> a double S. But uh, let's move on. Speaking of things that are talking on their ass, it <laughs> is what the owners are doing right now in terms of it is a really weird situation right now for as we wait to see if there's going to be baseball or not with the 82-game schedule. And there's a couple of things that came out this week. The one thing that came out on Saturday, or excuse me, Friday, rather, is that MLB projects to lose $640,000 per game with no fans, according to a presentation that was done, uh, a 12-page document that was called The Economics of Playing Without Fans in Attendance. And the original document was dated on May 12th, and this was the delay season, the, the idea with the season starting around the 4th of July. So they would say teams have said that a proposed method of salvaging the season delayed the coronavirus pandemic would still cause a $4 billion loss and give major league players 89% of the revenue. So the, the idea would be that more games played would allow that to offset. But the largest markets will be the most affected by fans. The Yankees alone, according to this report, that MLB owners put together would lose $312 million when calculating before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. So the Yankees, then the Dodgers at $232 billion, the Mets at 214 the Cubs at 201 and then the Red Sox coming in at just under $200 million at 199 So... What's interesting too is just in terms of like the, the Detroit, we have the lowest. Where they uh, just abbreviate it E B I D T A, so they would lose the lowest. So they eighty four billion, or excuse me, eighty four million with Baltimore at ninety million and Pittsburgh and Tampa Bay each at ninety one million. So the figures also don't include from the central office the media revenue, which projects projected to be about one point three four billion dollars. Mm-hmm. So all the figures were calculated by MLB and its clubs. And then Union, of course, was like, uh, BS. I mean, they were just like, we're, you know, where, where's the proof? Where's, where's the proof in the pit putting in? Yeah. yeah if, if they want people to believe what they're saying, then open up their books. Show us their financial numbers. If they show it and that it is true, then I'm sure the players would compromise. But nobody believes them because everybody knows that – they make most of their money on things that don't involve fans or at least at least half of it. You know, I think one of the estimates I saw was like 30 to 40 percent was from so, gate receipts. So, yeah. So 39 percent comes from the from local gate and other park sources. So concessions, I would assume, followed by 25 yeah. percent central revenue, which what is central revenue? I mean, that's when I was that's kinda... like MLB profit sharing from from the money that Major League Baseball's other ventures like MLB advanced media, I think. I think oh, okay. that you know they they generate tons of money with that, and they spread it evenly among the teams. Twenty two percent comes from local media, eleven percent from sponsorship, and four percent marked as other. So the yeah. <laughs> other, yeah, I don't know. Really... Like just you know that sometimes the team has a, a meth smuggling ring, yeah, or you know, the... not the biggest meth smuggling ring, but pretty big. Yeah, or they're they're making they're small children somewhere making backpacks. And, yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah. You know, so the, of course, another another number that stands out. Teams projected to increase their debit 
from 5.2 million billion last year to 7.3 billion in 2020. So, which leaves most clubs out of compliance with labor contract deb- debit service rule, and the central office increased their debit by 550 million to support clubs and seeking 650 more more credit. So this deal, by the way, the the current deal right now for the 170 million salaries is being advanced, ends on May 24th, so it's coming up shortly. Mm-hmm. But you saw today that California said they approved the rule that they could play sports without any fans starting in June. So that kind of lines up correctly with what, what baseball wants to do. Then I saw a story today. We were talking about it before the show. It was the, the, another it was an example of bad math. The Royals. Um, are projected somehow, according to a report, that they're projected to lose. What is this? Uh, I saw this earlier. Well, uh, 113 million if players don't take further pay cut as a projected number for the Royals, and the estimated payroll they have is 82.5 billion. It's prorated. That comes out to about 41 million for half a season. So, <laughs> all this bad yeah, math. Like, none of it makes any sense. Their, their highest paid player makes like $7 million in a year, or $14 million a year or something like that. So you're talking about set prorated salary, $7 million for half a season. Like how, how are they losing that much money? It, like none of it makes any sense. I don't know what they're – like you said, I mean I think – I know what they're trying to accomplish. I just don't know why they think they can pull it off. The, they're, they're basically trying to screw the players over to get leverage for the next negotiations next year. Not to mention, here's the thing. In the age of public, you can get information anytime, anywhere through the internet because of public information acts and what have you. Another one that came out today was a whopper, and this is what you retreated earlier. According to the AP, MLB told the union it would spend $440 million on amateur spending this year. It w- and of course, in Kyle Glazer, who's a national writer over at Baseball America, did a really good thread about it. He said, and he was he, the threat goes on to talk about he's they spent over two hundred thirty seven million on draft bonuses for players selected rounds one through five last year. Slot amounts are the same as this year, so two hundred twenty one would be deferred if everyone signs for slot. But the international slot amounts, which are hard capped, total over one hundred sixty six million for last year, would be similar to this year. So you're right, the math doesn't add up. So is is Kyle concluded is that's four hundred seven million if every player drafts. Signed and for slot, and every team spends their entire international bonus pool. Yeah, it it, it doesn't, nothing adds up. It, and so we know that that under this agreement, uh, all every bonus, you know, players who get drafted are going to get they're going to get a set amount. They're going to agreed upon bonus, like you know, Spencer Torkelson will get like eight million dollars or eight point one from the Tigers, but you can only get up to a hundred thousand this year. And then the rest of it is split 50% next year and 50% the year after that. So the most major league baseball is going to pay for their 160 draft picks this year is 16 million total that they're each one of them is going to get a hundred thousand dollars, but major league baseball is treating the rest of all that money that they're the deferred bonuses as part of this, this year too, which is just like, you might understand you had to put that in your books for later, but that's not, what it's going to cost you this year. It's, it's very strange. It's like saying, uh, you know, or pay, paying my mortgage. Like, ah, the mortgage is going to cost me $3,000, uh, this year. I don't know. That was, I'm just doing math in my head and that's probably not ideal, but basically 
counting the next two years of mortgage payments to say it's going to cost me that this year. It doesn't make any sense. Just because I have to pay it in the future doesn't mean it's it's part of this year. But yeah, and, and you said like Glazer was even doing it with the full bonuses, which is not what's going to happen this year. So I don't – again, I don't know where they're coming up with these numbers. It's just – it's complete insanity. So I took, concept, I took conceptual math in college, which is mm-hmm. – to this day, I can't even explain to you what that math is. And it was like if – you know, it's just a really bad math class. I feel like it's some sort of theory that they worked out like, okay, according to our math theory, our math that doesn't add up, it's common sense yeah. math. That's why I feel like what it is. Yeah, well, so I'm looking. So 384 million, because they're they're paying 16 million tops, right? Right. For this this with the hundred thousand dollar bonuses, and they can then sign anybody who is undrafted. They can sign for up to twenty thousand dollars. So I'm just looking at 384 million divided by twenty thousand, just real quick to see how many players that would have to be. Oh, 19,200. So if they sign 19,200 undrafted amateur players. Which is what? What does that come out to? About uh, seven hundred per team, something like that. Six hundred and fifty per team. <laughs> so, yeah, maybe that'll work. These fools, oh, whatever. Yeah, and then of course there's some there's some other documents in, ter- in terms of that document I was mentioning that the layout too, that there's no hugs, no spitting, no showering. Which, yeah, I mean this is stuff with, like. I don't know, back in March when I, I, I think I tweeted out that I thought there was like 99% chance that we were going to have baseball this season. And one of the things I was saying is like, are they not going to hug or not going to spit? Well, this is kind of all obvious stuff that we've seen coming, but it is, they're starting to kind of codify it now. I don't know. Do you ever watch John Oliver? Yes. On HBO? Did you see the one last night where they were talking about sports? No, I missed that one. Uh, yeah. So they were talking, it, it was, it was a good segment. It was, it was, uh, you know, 15 minutes about you know, sports, what we're missing with sports and how do we get them going again? And they talked about the Bundesliga, uh, which is what the German soccer league. Correct. Yep. And uh, they said that two players there have already tested positive. And Germany, you know, has done a much better job than we have. And one of their, one of their assistant coaches had to be quarantined because he went out to get toothpaste. Like, what are you doing? Can you use the but, stuff at uh, the hotel? Yeah. So, so they're going to be issues. But uh, I don't know. I, I mean, I think the will is there. I think eventually, like you said, the deadline for the players is coming up. I feel like there will be an agreement. I don't know who's going to bend on this. I would think the owners will bend a little bit or they'll get some something, a concession down the line to bend this year. And then and then what was they were talking about? People starting to report around June 10th. Yeah, and then games great, yeah. around July 4th. I, I, th- I think that's still a possibility. Um, I would hope that, that everybody wants to get this going, but we'll see. I mean, I could see it falling apart pretty easily, too. As safely as possible, though. The biggest thing to me is safely as possible that everybody yeah. comes away with this, like, you know. You know, um, to me, I think it's just one of those things where we look, I look at it as I understand the, the, I've said this before privately, and I've said this on Twitter, and I've said it on some of the articles I've written. It's imperative that they get this right versus that, and not to take it like just so lightly, too. And a lot of people who are quote unquote suddenly medical experts about this whole thing that it's just it's a free, it's a it's a whole thing of rights and all that stuff. I'm not going to get in that whole side of it because it's yeah. stupid and pointless. But 
when it comes to this kind of things, these athletes, whether they're pre, you might think they're prima donnas, whatever, they're still people. And they still have concerns. They still have people. They have wives and, and people in their lives that could, could potentially get infected. So that's a real th- issue. And I don't understand mm-hmm. the short sightedness of people who not to think that blows my mind. I, I need sports. What? So you can bitch about it on Twitter later. <laughs> yeah, it's that's that'll be the funniest thing is is if when baseball comes back, how long it takes for people to start complaining about the players sucking. Come on, you bum! It's like huh, you wanted this. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I I'm not one of those people who is. There's a lot of people who've gone like all in on the KBO, and I just I don't know. It just doesn't really do it for me. Yeah. Um. And and I should I, I love baseball in all, but it's just not. I'm kind of provincial, you know, I want to watch my local team. That's, uh, I would be a fan of just about anything if they had a local team. MLS, if NASCAR were team-based, I might even like it. Probably not, but I guess it is team-based, but I mean, like, geographically team-based. I mean, hey, man, look, if handball is going on, like, handball's big in Europe, by the way. You ever watch watch handball? I watch it in in the uh, Olympics sometimes. Handball's a pretty interesting sport. There's a rule. Yeah. There's a strategy to it. And I, if, look, if there's a Detroit wheels or any insert motor adjective you want to write, because it seems like every Detroit team has some sort of motor to it, the motors themselves. I watch handball. I would, you know, anything to be involved that. But yeah, you're right, Chris. And not to mention the career, the the games and career are on in such weird times. Yeah, that, that's kind of hard for me. I suppose I could record them, but no, that was the that's the thing that ended John Oliver last night was with the uh, was with the Marble Racing League which is, I don't know if we talked about that before, but it's something that I was watching with the boys like two months ago when the thing first started. Just watching those Marvels race. It's it's kind of ridiculous, but yet somehow fun and compelling. Yeah, I, I to me, ultimately, it's just the safety factor. And, and if baseball is yeah. going to come around to it, then great. And the 82 game schedule would provide, and probably next week or two, we'll, we'll, I think we we'll should, if there's an announcement about it, I think we'll talk more about it. But there should be some interesting... Uh, so something that John Erica wrote for um, for us on Motor City Bengals is the being optimistic about an A two game schedule for the Tigers. You know, if you get Michael Fulmer, especially terrible, you got a decent rotation coming back. It's it's feasible that the Tigers should be entertaining. Yeah, I mean, it, you, what you're hoping. I mean, their pitching was okay last year. We talked about a bunch. It was just the offense was just uh, abysmal. Yeah. So what you're hoping is that. You know, we saw Cabrera look really good in the spring. We're hoping that he would come back. You're hoping that CJ Crone and Jonathan Scope uh, are upgrades and Austin Romine, and suddenly you've got a team that can compete. And I don't know, man, you go, if they expand the playoffs, is it outrageous to think the Tigers could go 500 in an 82-game 80, season? I mean, maybe, but you get close to that, and you're probably, I don't know how, how many expanded playoffs they were talking about, 14 teams or something like that? 14 teams, that's correct, yeah. So, I, you know. It's possible. It's the sort of thing where I would be all for them. I mean, they still need still need more help, so you might just want them to tank some more and you know go get Kumar Rocker or, or Jack Leiter or whoever is going first overall next year. But uh, it'd be kind of fun to just just have a short season and they start off well and you can root for them. Absolutely. I mean, whoever whoever I think it, it depends on if they're sticking with AL Central teams and NL Central teams, they're facing only. That gives you a better opportunity because you're not going to the they're not going to get pounded out by the Yankees, the Red Sox of the world, or out west where they always struggle against teams in the West on the road. Oakland, 
Seattle. Not necessarily so much Seattle, but Oakland, the Angels. The Angels, yeah. Yeah, so and the Astros are still good no matter what their situation is. So if they have if they have to worry about the they have to worry about the Indians and Twins, the White Sox are mm-hmm. coming up, but they, they the Tigers always play the White Sox tough no matter what year it is. It's it's interesting. And you got the Royals who are worse off than you are. Yeah, well, theoretically. Yeah, theoretically. They were, they were, I mean, we were the Tigers were worse last year. Let's see. Let's see what was the Tiger record at eighty-two games last year? They were twenty-seven and fifty-five. Not gonna cut it. But uh, let's check twenty eighteen. Eighty-two games. They were thirty-six and forty-six. Yeah. Right. You know. Again. Let's see. Yeah. Twenty seventeen. I'm just going through. 37 and 45. Now we're getting there. Three years ago. <laughs> All right. Now we're oh, pulling. Oh, 2016. All right. This is the one. This is the one. This is the money. But 44 and 38. Look at that. Playoff bound in 2016 with Verlander uh, and other good people, younger Cabrera. By the way, speaking of, speaking of younger something that a team did during like a younger kind of vibe. Uh, mm. South Korean soccer team was accused of putting sex dolls in their seats. <laughs> I think they apologized yeah, for it. Yeah, they had to apologize for it, but they... <laughs> who cares? What does yeah. anybody care about anything anymore? Yeah, who cares? They're not doing anything. It's not like they were doing an act, by the way. So, anyways, yeah. that, that was a story that I thought that was, that was funny. They added on there. But, um, yeah, let's move on. By the way, this date in baseball, something I wanted to add in there because I've been getting on another podcast where they're asking me all these baseball like trivia questions on this date in baseball, so I've been brushing up a little bit. On this day in baseball, 19, May 18, 1912, Tiger players went on strike to protest Ty Cobb's suspension to avoid a forfeited fine. Manager Hugh Jennings recruited college players and others. They lost to the Philadelphia A's 24-2. to Oof. Joe Tavers gave up all 24 runs on 26 hits. Eesh. Yeah. That's a rough outing. Yeah. That'll mess up your uh, ERA. So, and then on this day, another interesting big, like, big slam. The Indians dealt the Red Sox the worst shot in their history, winning 19 and nothing behind. Herb scores three-hitter, and Vic Wirtz drove in five runs, including Grand Slam, in 11-run fifth inning. So, there you go, some dates of baseball history. So speaking of history, tonight we're going to start with our team build of the 1998 San Diego Padres. And there's a lot of parallels between this team, a lot of interesting tidbits between this and the Tigers, as the Tigers were frequent trade partners with the Padres at this time, but two different, two teams going in two different directions. But the reason why we're going with that was because Tony Gwynn's, like I mentioned at the top of the podcast, his birthday was on May 9th, and... The 84, of course, he took on the Padres in 84. That was early on in Gwen's career. This is when he is vintage wine, just aging gracefully, putting the ball wherever he wants. Just, he was getting down to science. And not to mention, this is my era. Like, this, the Padres have changed jerseys more often than I've changed shirts. Like, they're, they're, <laughs> they're always changing jerseys. And this is the kind of, like, the Padres have had some really cool, then some really crappy jerseys. But this period of time with the pinstripes, and they had the San Diego Padres Baseball Club, which is kind of a boring logo, but it was still pretty cool. It was like the most consistent they were for a while, and that was the era of baseball. But this team is deeper than what I imagined. And so tonight I'm going to have Chris lead off with the hitters of this team, and I'll start 
or I'll do the pitchers. So Chris, take it away. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I think that this was a team that was largely uh, guided by the pitching. I think the pitching was was better than the hitting. But uh, yeah, this is this is my senior year of high school, actually, 1998, and I remember nothing. Remember nothing from this team, really. Um, yeah, it's not not a particularly noteworthy offense uh, overall. It was 16th in, in Fangraphs WAR, 13th in home runs, 18th in runs scored, 25th in steals, 7th in walk rate. And 14th and way to run creative plus 99, basically an average offense. And they were 24th in defense. So it wasn't, wasn't like this juggernaut, but, uh, but they did go 98 and 64 and made it to the world series anyway. So it's worth talking about how they built it. And, and, you know, like you said, it, part of this team was built by Randy Smith. Uh, but a lot of it was the work of, of Kevin towers, rest in peace, who was uh, a, a kind of a, a big figure in baseball. He's a, a huge, uh, influence on a lot of people. He was a GM there in San Diego and then went on to GM in, in Arizona, I believe. But we start with this team with the obvious. You talk about Tony Gwynn, uh, again, rest in peace, Mr. Padre. Um, you know, it, it, by 98, he was 38 years old and his career was almost over, but he was still just, a, you know, one of the great hitters of all time. 17th season on San Diego. He hit 321 with 16 homers, which is one of his, his higher home run outputs uh, with 35 walks and 18 strikeouts, which is just hilarious. Uh, but he only played 127 games that year. It was worth 1.6 war for them, which was sixth on the team. But it's still, you know, it's Gwen's team. He's he's the leader. Uh, and, yeah, he was drafted way back in 1981 in the third round out of San Diego State, kind of hometown guy, you know. Six picks after the Yankees selected John Elway, which is kind of fun. Uh, Gwen, he, Gwen ended up with the highest war of anybody in that draft. Anybody who signed, I think Clemens was also in that draft, but he didn't sign. Um at 69.2, uh, which was ahead of David Cohn, who was also a third rounder. So that's interesting. You know, the two best players in the draft, both in the third round. And for what it's worth in that year, the Tigers drafted Ricky Barlow in the first, who never made the majors, I don't think. Or, or if he did, he was no good. Nope, he never made uh, the majors. Nelson Simmons in the second uh, round, who put up zero war. And then uh, speaking of quarterbacks with John Elway, they drafted Bubby Brister in the fourth, a shortstop out of uh, Louisiana. So... Yeah, I mean Tony Gwynn was the foundation, but that was so far before this team. It's kind of you know hard to hard to really count that as anything. Uh, so you have you have to flash forward all the way to 1994, the end of 1994. Ken Caminiti comes to the Padres in one of those massive Randy Smith specials. It, it might have been the biggest trade of all time. Eleven players with the Astros, uh, and Caminiti was was really good for the Padres. He hit 302 with 26 homers and won a Gold Glove uh, at third base in that first year in San Diego '95. Then won the MVP in '96. Uh, when he hit 326 with 40 homers, and he was solid again in '97, but was starting to slow down in '98 when he hit 252 with 29 homers in 131 games. It was still worth uh, 2.7 WAR, so it was one of the better players on the team, third best. Uh, but yeah, it was kind of winding down for him. He's back to the Astros a year later, and then out of baseball in 2001. And then another guy who unfortunately died very young. He died in 2004, I believe. And uh, yeah, there were some allegations that his uh, impressive performance there in San Diego wasn't natural. Uh, yeah, naturally come to, I guess is what you would say. Uh, in that same trade, uh, Steve Finley comes to the, the Padres. I didn't remember him with the Padres. I guess um, I remember more with the, the Diamondbacks, but he, he had an interesting career. Uh, he was an Orioles draft pick in the 12th round at 87 out of Southern Illinois. And he was just, you know, came into baseball as a speedy center fielder without any power. And and he was traded the Astros with Pete Harnish and Kurt Schilling for Glenn Davis. What a, what a robbery for the, <laughs> The Astros eventually like I I don't know what the total war and that deal would have worked out to me. It had to be like 100 to one or more 100. I don't know what Glenn Davis did for the the, the Orioles. But um, but yeah, Finley had a couple good seasons by war standards. I think 
he probably would have been more appreciated now than he was back then because he was he was just hitting for a solid average and, and stealing a lot but didn't you know he didn't top double digit home runs until 1995 uh with with the Padres uh, he had 297 with 10 homers and 36 steals, 36 steal 36 in Uh But his first huge year, it was in 96 when he randomly, after topping out with 11 home runs in 96, randomly hit 30 home runs. 298 with 30 home runs and 22 steals, almost six war. Uh, and then it fell apart, strangely enough. One, one and a half war in 97. And then 98, he hit 249 with 14 home runs and 12 steals, an 89 way to run created plus and zero war in 159 games as a regular center fielder. He was a replacement-level player for the Padres that year. But uh, then he went to the, the Diamondbacks the next year and had like four or five great seasons with them. So it was just kind of kind of strange. You know, this really good major league player had this terrible year in, in the Padres' last great seasons. Um, the next big player to come, there, there's some big names on this team, or at least uh, names for my youth. Wally Joyner came uh, in a trade in December of 95. Tiger City coach. Too. Yeah. Yeah. He was originally drafted by the Angels in the third round of 83 out of BYU. And he was kind of famously had had this amazing beginning to his career at 86 and 87. They, call, they were calling Wally World in Los Angeles. But he never was able to, to live up to the standards he set in 86 and 87. And it's kind of unfair because 87 was that rabbit ball year, you know. So he was never the guy who would hit for that much power. But uh, after, you know, six years in the Angels, he moved to the Royals in 92, where he, he was continuing. He just a solid player. He hit for average, not much power, playing solid defense. Uh, and he came to the Padres in a trade for Bip Roberts. Uh, and he played first base for the Padres, was a solid three-win player in 96, and close to four-win in 97. Bip Roberts. Yeah, Bip Roberts was a fun fun name. Uh, and then 98, he was solid again. Hit 298, 370, 453, just 12 home runs. But it was it was his last average year. Two war. Um, he had one one solid year in San Diego, and then two more partial seasons before he retired. So that's this was like the last hurrah for Wally Joyner. But he was their first baseman. And here we go. Here's a name Tigers fans remember. In June of 1996, the Padres trade for Chris Gomez, uh, drafted by Detroit in the third round in '92 out of Long Beach State. Detroit uh, debuted with the Tigers in '93, and then became a regular in '95. Uh, Tigers traded him to the Padres with John Flaherty for Brad Osmus and Andujar Cedeno. Uh, and what's funny is, is Gomez was literally a negative war player every season until that 98 year when he was randomly almost uh, in a, an average player. Hit 267, 346, 379. Not, uh, not, not good, but close to 100 weighted runs created plus and his defense was average. So he actually played for 10 more years but finished as a negative war player in his career, which is always impressive to see when you have a, a season of almost two war and then finish two war, a negative two war in your, your career. Um and then the next one was the really the biggest player, the offensive driver for that team, came uh, on the, at the trade deadline in, in 1996. Greg Vaughn, who was he was a giant prospect in the 80s. I remember collecting his cards all the time. He was he was actually drafted five times back when they had two drafts each year, you know, one in January, one in June, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and the one that stuck was with the Brewers in 1986. Um, and his biggest year for them was 93 when he hit 267 with 30 homers and, and 89 walks. He was another guy who I think would be appreciated a little bit more now because he was not somebody who hit for a lot of average ever, but he walked a lot and hit for power. And it, there was there was another guy I kind of compared to him who played for the Astros back in the same era, but I've forgotten his name, so we probably about, shouldn't bring him. Talk about Jose Cruz or no, no. No, it was another kind of power-hitting outfielder. I don't know. Was it Kevin McReynolds? Does that make any sense? Or, I don't know. Or, 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 or what about Derek Bell? 
I wasn't no, Derek Bell. No, no, Derek Bell didn't have a lot of power. I know. I, I, I you know what? Let me, I'll take a look. I, you can continue. I, I think I have. I, I think I know what you're talking about. Uh, no, not Kevin McReynolds. What am I thinking of? Kevin, Mc, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, Kevin McDonald or McReynolds was more like a like. The, I always I was used to get him and Kevin Seltzer confused for some strange reason. Mm-hmm. Well, Kevin McReynolds like, had a solid career. Sorry for this uh, sidetrack, but yeah. Anyway, it. Um, uh, Greg Vaughn, a big prospect, wasn't quite working out, but uh, in the uh, in in '96, there the the Brewers traded him to the Padres for Ron Valone, Bryce Flory, and Mark Newfield. By the way, I didn't, and Vaughn, by was the way, that? I, uh, Moises Alou played for the Astros in that, that season. I totally forgot he played for the Astros. Moises Alou did. Yeah, '98. He was with the Astros. Oh. He had 38 home runs. Derek Bell had 22. It could be Derek <laughs> so, Bell. No, I'd say I'm thinking of like the late '80s, early '90s Astros. Oh, okay, okay. I'll, I'll go back. Continue. I don't think it was Kevin Bass or but it was somebody. Ke- oh, Kevin Bass. That's a that's a name that I used to have like a ton of his baseball cards. But yeah, my, we used to uh, put speakers on his head. By the way, uh, speaking of the Astros, our how poor our how is in the hospital right now. Got- I, I heard he got out. Oh, he got out. All right, sweet. Okay. This- that's but but uh, I, hey, don't quote me on that. I thought I thought he did, but let's see. All right, and, sorry. And, and by the way, Steve Finley also with the Astros in late ninety uh, one. Really? Yeah, it was with the Astros. I did, I always associate Steve Finley by the way with the Angels. He played with the Angels. Um, I think so. Yeah. Boy, I don't know. This is Former it's always fun for us to our meandering uh, thoughts about this stuff. Who am I? Who is this Astros player I'm taking up? I'll keep yeah, going. Just keep, you keep going. I'll I'll look for it. Okay, I'm going to back. Up. Up. No. Eric Anthony is that is that right? Eric Anthony or you think of Billy Hatcher? Billy Hatcher no. sounds no. Billy Hatcher wasn't a home run guy though. Hold on, let me see. I, I'm, I'm, I think it was Eric Anthony. Eric Anthony. Why do I remember that guy? I don't know why I thought he was a big prospect. He doesn't look like he's a very big prospect. Whatever. I fell victim to the baseball cards and the rated rookies and stuff. Anyway, so Greg Vaughn. Good player, uh, was disappointed in '97. Only hit 216 with 18 homers, but 1998 was that. That was his monster year. 276, 363, 597, 50 homers as a left fielder. Must have been the water. Um, he did play five more years with Cincinnati, Tampa, and Colorado, but that was his best year ever. 6.3 WAR. Got some. I think he was fourth in the MVP voting. Uh, the next player that comes to the, the Padres is the uh, Kilvio Veras. This is a guy I didn't remember. He just kind of was a quick, short career. Uh, originally signed with the Mets, but was traded to the Marlins in 1994 for Carl Everett. Uh, he came up with the Marlins in 95 and led the National League in steals. I thought I might remember that, but I guess not. Uh, but he was traded to the Padres in late 96 for Dustin Hermanson. He was their second baseman, and he just is, you know, a solid player. Hit 265 with a bunch of walks and 30 steals in 97. Only three homers, though, uh, so he's just not a power hitter. And then 98 was his career year by war, 3.6 war to, to baseball reference, second on the team. Uh, he hit 267, 373, 356, more walks than strikeouts and 24 steals while playing solid defense at second base. So he was a solid player. Apparently, as I was saying, his brother was murdered in the Dominican Republic that, that year in 1998. So that uh, obviously a damper on your season. Uh, but then he was he was pretty young, but he was out of baseball after 2001. So I don't, I don't know what happened. I didn't, uh, I didn't really look into that. The... Uh, the next piece of this team came a month later, or a couple weeks later, actually, in December, December 2nd, 1996. Carlos Hernandez was a catcher signed by the Dodgers out of Venezuela in 1984. He made the bigs with L.A. in 1990. He was just kind of a part-time player, like a third catcher for seven seasons. Uh, and he came to the Padres in 97, or 96, and was a solid back, backup for him in 97, 50 games. So they re-signed him for 97 and made him the regular catcher in 98. It was the only time in his career he was a regular catcher. 
hit 262 with nine homers in 127 games. Uh, yeah, and then they realized. I think they you'll see they made a couple trades for for other catchers in the season because I guess they didn't think he was enough. Uh, and then here's an episode of baseball that I had totally forgotten. But uh, April 22nd, 1997, uh, they get Ruben Rivera, who was one of the great toolsy prospect busts of all time. He was a guy like Bobby Bonds comparisons, Eric Davis comparisons, like plus plus power, plus plus speed, center field defense, uh, and just never figured it out. He was was Mariano Rivera's cousin and signed with the Yankees in 1990 out of Panama. Uh, he was a top 10 prospect to Baseball America three times, three separate years, was in the top 10 overall. Um, but he he played 46 games with the Yankees in 1997 or 96, yeah, and was traded to San Diego uh, with Rafael Medina and $3 million for Hideki Rabu. I had forgotten that the Padres were the ones who actually originally signed Hideki Rabu, but he refused to play for them. He would only play for the Yankees, so they traded him. Um, but Rivera was hurt for most of 97, so he didn't do much for the Padres. And then he, in 98, he hit 209 with six home runs and five steals and 174 at-bats. So he was just basically an extra outfielder. He spent a couple more years there in San Diego, but he never, never figured out how to hit or cut down on his strikeouts. And so it was, you know, a bummer, a waste of good tools. Uh, we're, we're basically down to the, uh, the, the utility players at this point. We've got Mark Sweeney who signed in late 97 or, or yeah, they traded for him in, in the mid 97 signed by the angels, in the ninth round of 91 draft traded to the Cardinals. and was a bit player for two seasons came to the Padres with a couple other hitters for, for Phil Plantier or Plantier. I don't remember how we used to pronounce his name. And Scott Livingstone and Fernando Valenzuela. It was an interesting deal. Scott Livingstone, uh, former Tiger. Yeah. So Sweeney was basically a pinch hitter in 97 and 98. Played 193 games in those two seasons, but just 295 at-bats. At so he's but one, one at-bat a game. Uh, he moved on to the Reds later. Uh, played 10 more seasons, but his best best year was actually back with the Padres in 2005. Then you got Ed Giovanella, who who put up half a, w- a win as a pinch hitter and utility infielder, and originally drafted by Atlanta in 1990, claimed off the waivers by the Padres in, in October of 97. Then you got Andy Sheets, another bench guy uh, acquired in uh, November in a trade for John Flaherty. Uh, he hit 242 with seven home runs and seven steals and 194 at bats in the uh, for the, in the 98 season. So that was that's pretty valuable for a, a bench guy. Uh, he played. Parts of four more seasons, and now I think he's a scout. Like he went off to Japan. Then Greg Myers, veteran backup catcher, was actually worth more than Carlos Hernandez uh, that year, uh, and just 171 at bats because he hit 246 with four homers. Uh, played seven more years before he retired. I think he was started with the Blue Jays. And then uh, you got Jim Layretz, who they traded for. This was, I guess, kind of their big trade acquisition. Uh, June 20th, 1998. Um, you know, catcher, first base type, Layretz. A postseason, a postseason legend with the Yankees. Um, he signed with the Yankees, an undrafted free agent in '85, and was kind of debuted with them in 1990, and, and had a couple solid years. And you know, he hit those like two just massive home runs for the Yankees. One was a a walk off in the, what the 15th inning against the Mariners in that that great bonkers series in 1995. What was that? The ALCS, ALDS. Yeah, the ALDS, I guess. Um, DS, like one of the first yeah. wild card series. Uh, and then in in Game Four of the World Series in '96 against the Braves, you know the, the Yankees lost the first two games of that World Series, and they were losing. Was it six to three, eight to five, something like down six to three in the eighth inning? And Layritz hit a three-run homer to tie it, 
And then, you know, you could, you could point to that being as the moment, like the biggest moment in the world series, because if they go down three games to one and it's hard to come back. So a couple of huge homers for the Yankees, but anyway, he comes to the Padres and, uh, hit 266 with four home runs and 10 doubles for him and 143 at bats. So that was pretty impactful. And then in the non-waiver trader deadline, they traded for John Vanderwall, another utility guy who had 240 in 20 games. That was uh, basically the, the, the crux of the offense. Um, and then when they got to the playoffs uh, that year, they beat the Astros, that Astros team with Alou on it, uh, three games to one. It wasn't, they only hit 216, 277, 384, but, uh, but Layritz went four for 10 with three homers. And Greg Vaughn went hit three thirty three with a homer, and and Carlos Hernandez was five for twelve. But uh, by the way, Tony Gwynn only only hit two hundred. Everybody else was below that. Yeah, what's up? Uh, for that, for, they just averaged three point eight runs per game in the in, in the entire postseason before the World Series. Yeah, it was really. I mean, you'll you'll discuss why that was possible. I think yes, uh, yes, coming sir. up, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and then they beat beat the Braves, who were probably the you know, I mean they. The, they were just as good as that Yankees team that year, and that was one of the best Yankees teams of all, all time. And they went and beat the Braves four to two in the NLCS. They actually got ahead three games to none in that series, I think. Yeah, I, rem- I the- remember watching that series live too because that was the because it was just Sterling Hitchcock just all over. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll get to that a little bit later, but it was just it was a matter it was a matter of just the staff, the Brave staff with all that talent couldn't get it done. I mean, this is a Braves team too. No slouch. This is a team that had. Ozzy Guillen, they had some veteran bats. They had Andres Galarraga, Ryan Klesko, Javier Lopez coming in in his prime, or not his prime, but still you know, in his prime at this time. This was no slouch of an offensive lineup. No, but- yeah, that, by war, the Braves had the number one offense in baseball and the number one pitching staff in baseball. They, was, they were a monster team. But that just goes to show you what can happen you know, in, in a seven-game series. The, um, the bats weren't weren't great, but well, Kennedy hit a hit a ten, tenth inning homer in game one to win three two, and then it was Kevin Brown show in game game two, and then that uh, Hernandez Carlos Hernandez with a big uh, two out RBI double to put him up three one in the eighth inning. So just really timely hits and good pitching. Yeah, they took so they took the three nothing lead. They Bryce fought back, and the Padres won five nothing in game six. Sterling Hitchcock was really good, as you said, and then there was a huge two run error in left field by Danny Bautista. He kind of came in and it bounced off his glove and then they switched and runs and that's vaulted them to the world series where they got thumped by the Yankees. <laughs> they hit 239, 297, 373 with three homers total two from Vaughn and one from Gwen. Gwen was awesome with eight for 16 in the series. Um, uh, Ruben Rivera was actually four for five. It must've been fun for him against his old team. And Gomez was four for 11 with a triple, but nobody else did much. And uh, yeah, they, they got swept out of the world series. And like I said, there's no, Shame in that, really. That was, like I said, one of the best Yankees teams ever. They won 114 and 48, and then 11-2 in the playoffs. But, but yeah, it was kind of a, a rough end for a solid offense. But you know, the magic had to run out at some point. That's and that's the offense of the Brave or the Padres. Speaking of the yes, the Braves. By the way, Tom Glavin in that series, 11 innings, 13 hits, six runs, nine walks, nine walks for a guy who only gave up 74 walks and 229 innings pitched. The regular season, it was the Braves' only twenty-game winner that season. Mm-hmm. And Kerry Leitenberg, who was like lights out during the regular season, also got lit up for two of a seven-point-three-six ERA in that series, and he struggled. The bullpen, again, the Braves' bullpen struggled mightily. Rudy Siaz and John Rocker just all struggled, and it was just it was ridiculous. So, again, it was one of these days we're going to do a whole. 
think about the Braves in the world, and then they're just in the postseason because Tiger fans have every right to complain. That's understandably so, but the Braves fans, ooh. Anyway, mm-hmm. so let's start with before we get to the. There's a big obvious with this pitch staff. I'll get to. We'll talk about everybody else but the obvious. So, mm-hmm. um, in terms of just how this team was put together, the rotation was put together. It's kind of it's kind of an interesting story. So certainly Hirschcock, who I mentioned a little bit earlier, we talked about a little bit earlier. He came over originally from Seattle Mariners in exchange for Scott Sanders, who was his teammate on his rotation. How did Scott Sanders came over? Well, he came over from Detroit middle of the season after posting an ERA of over thirteen. After just it just seemed like disgruntled. And I did a story on Randy Smith for our website. It was Scott Sanders was not happy to be in Detroit whatsoever. And his numbers would reflect that. And I'll get to those in a second. So Sterling Hitchcock and Scott Sanders, who was Sanders was out of the bullpen. And he was kind of like a swing starter kind of guy. <clears throat> Occasional starts. Joey Hamilton, the first pick, eighth overall in the 1991 draft. And he just, for all the being eighth, eighth pick of the draft, he expected a little more than just over a 500 record for his career. And he posted an ERA in year five in the National League, which mm-hmm. kind of says something about his ability. But another mm-hmm. part of the, the the number two guy in the rotation, Andy Ashby, he was he came over a few years earlier. The Rockies originally drafted him from the expansion draft out of Philly, and uh, they sent him over for a player to be named later by the name of Brad Osmus and Doug Bolsler to the Padres for Greg Harris and Bruce Hurst. Bruce Hurst, if you're familiar, is a was a, one of the pitchers on the Red Sox rotation back in 1986. So doing a name association with that. Then I mentioned earlier Mark Langston, by the way. Mark Langston was part of this rotation. And Mark Langston is a name that for any fan out there growing up, he was always among the top five in the American League in strikeouts. The guy was a strikeout king. At this point, this version of Mark Langston was on his last leg. He was 37 years old. The lefty was, he would only pitch two more seasons. Actually, the final next year would be his final season, 1999. But in terms of strikeouts, I think in any other, I think if he had pitched a decade earlier, he would have 3,000 easily. But he retired with 2,464 strikeouts. But this year, at that point, he was worth really in terms of like a fan war standpoint point zero eight. So he was just the guy who went out there every fifth day and did what he had to do. But the elephant in the room on this rotation is one Kevin Brown. Ladies and gentlemen, what we witnessed in 1998 and I witnessed this because I watched a lot of baseball was the, one of those dominating performances of all time for one pitcher in a season. If you talk about a guy who would eventually earn his money, which he did with the Dodgers, which we'll get to that a little later at some point. The Dodgers at that time weren't the Dodgers we know now. The Dodgers were going into just getting every name they could get. The Daryl Starberry era, a little earlier. They weren't developing talent, and so they had to always sign everybody. And when they, they signed the deal for Kevin Brown, this is the reason why. He was traded. He came over from the fire sale for the Marlins. And that trade involved Derek Lee. So the, they gave up Padres, excuse me, gave up Derek Lee and Rafael Mania and Steve Hoff. So he came over pretty much for Derek. Essentially, Derek Lee would be good elsewhere. But that's a deal 
that would pay off in spades for Kevin Towers, who there's one thing about him you can say he was pretty good at pulling off some trade value and so and this year would give Kevin Brown the money he would get from the Dodgers. His season in terms of fangrass were nine point six. The closest Padre to that was Andy Ashby at three point two. That's how good Kevin Brown was. Let's go inside the numbers of Kevin Brown in his 19. And this is a guy who originally, by the way, was with Texas and Baltimore before he joined the Marlins. And this is a, he's just becoming a, at that point later on, he would become more of a higher gun. But his season in terms of value, why was this? Why was he so valuable for the Padres, Chris? Well, let me tell you why. His 1998 season was. Well, you look at it. Okay, wins and losses. All right, it doesn't matter. 18-7, and seven, ERA of 2.38. He started in 35 games. He pitched 257 innings. He had 257 strikeouts. He had a FIP of 2.23 in terms of a, a whip of <laughs> 1.06. His FIP, his whip in the Marlins two years prior to that, Chris, by the way, mm. was 0.94. Yeah, I know he, he he was in the middle of an absolutely dominant like five six year run there. Yeah, whereas he he was one of the best pitchers in baseball, just a turbo sinker, and he's a guy who really deserves uh, some discussion for the Hall of Fame. If if you look at his career stats, I mean yeah. I have I I don't know. I mean you got a career sixty seven point eight WAR according to Baseball Reference with a career three two eight ERA. I don't that that's probably pretty close to what Verlander has right now. I would think two hundred eleven wins, hundred forty four losses. Let me look while you continue. Yeah, so, I mean, this is a guy who was number one. He was uh, top five draft pick in 1986. So he highly regarded out of Georgia Tech. But you look at it, that stretch run. It starts It starts from 96 till probably about 2000, 2001. And it's a 10-year run. And he finishes the season with the ERA 1.89 in 1996 for the Marlins. It was just – that's how dominant he was. That, mm-hmm. that season itself – and he only finished. With, he finished third in the Cy Young. Yeah, he never actually won a Cy Young, nope. did he? That's a bummer. Yeah, which I think would have helped his Hall of Fame cause, but it, unfortunately, that's probably totally. Yeah, yeah, let's see who. I'm curious. That must have been a Maddox year, I would think. Ninety-six or maybe Gla- what was it? Glavin won in Smoltz. Smoltz. Smoltz won it with a two-nine-four ERA, but he won twenty-four games. Womp, 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 womp. What about, Although he, yeah, he was a bigger strikeout guy. Two hundred seventy-six strikeouts. Brown was more of a just like I said, turbo sinker. One hundred fifty-nine strikeouts, but. His ERA plus was much better. Yeah, Glavin won it for Glavin won it in nineteen ninety eight, and that was funny because Brown went out pitch Glavin mm-hmm. in the in the postseason. So, but fun know, fact: Kevin Brown's first name James. James, really? Nice. Yeah, James Kevin Brown is his name. James Brown. Um, so, <laughs> the other part of this uh, who, who finished second in Cy Young was his teammate closer Trevor Hoffman. So Trevor Hoffman. Mm-hmm. Is who's now he's in the he is in the Hall of Fame, and rightfully so. He is a seven-time All Star, and he was originally. So here's the thing: you think of him as a Padre because he's obviously been the Hall of Fame for a Padre. But he was traded by the Marlins because he was drafted by the Marlins in the expansion draft with Andres Bruman and Jose Martinez for Rich Rodriguez, not that Rich Rodriguez. And one of your favorite players of all time, Chris, Gary Sheffield. Well, 
Oh, very nice. Yeah, so in 1993. And then in terms of his career, in terms of a closer being the ultimate fireman, if you will, he was it. I mean, his pitching rapport was what? He had a a fastball, and he had a good slider, didn't he? It was a uh, Hoffman? Yeah. It was a changeup. Changeup, sorry, changeup. Because yeah. Hoffman was a shortstop, I think, yeah, in the minors, or at least uh, as a as an amateur. That is correct, yeah. And he, the one thing about him, too, like his brother, he had a brother played in the ba- baseball, Glenn, which is not, I mean, it's like, uh, who cares yeah. about that? But um, he converted, here's the thing about it, he converted, he was such a reliable closer, he converted 89% of his saves Ranking third out of 50 closers with the most saves, only behind Rivera and Joe Nathan, which is ironically enough, because Joe Nathan mm. ended his career, you know, in terms of... Uh, <laughs> Joe Nathan was one of the great closers of all time until he got to Detroit, and it all fell apart immediately. Yeah. Yeah, his, so, his brother... Fun for us. His brother also managed the Dodgers in 1990. I totally forgot about that. Hoffman's you know that? brother? Yeah. Glenn managed the Dodgers part of 98. Huh. Forgot yeah, about that. that. So here's the thing, too. He went where he went where he played shortstop at was at the university of Arizona and he got, he was playing with JT snow and sky Erickson. Mm-hmm. So he Pretty actually, team. he let, he led the team in batting average with a three point or three point, sorry, three seventy one batting average. So he, by the way, he signed with the team for $3,000. So if anybody out Jeez. there, yeah. So if you think about inflation and all that stuff, but anyway, but he was able to, he was able to throw 95, but not, like in terms of like, he was such a weak hitter, but in terms of professionally, he was able to throw 95 miles. He was developed. He, de- he developed his off-speed stuff and breaking stuff in the minors, and that's where he got started doing his descend. And anyway, Trevor Hoffman was really just in terms of just going back there and having that kind of why the Padres were able to go so far in 1998. Another part of the bullpen, a couple of former Tigers, and Dan Maselli, who was. I remember reading some articles about him, like how the Tigers were pursuing pursuing him hard, and I didn't understand why. Because I mean, because I get, but he had a lively arm. He was like 90, 95, 96. And at the time, you know, Chris, and again, we should do like a, a stat, like for at the time, um, him and Donnie Wall both were part of the Tigers bullpen, or uh, sorry, um, not Donnie Wall, but he was traded originally from was part for Clint Sadowski trade. And that's how he got end up going over there, but I remember when they when the Tigers got him, it was oh yeah, this, this guy's gonna really gonna solidify the bullpen. <laughs> but he did solidify the Padres bullpen, and he was really I mean for the he never started, but he won ten games. But he was that it was kind of like that staff. He was kind of like the committee bullpen by committee thing with whatever the starter kind of fell out. Him, Donnie Wall. Brian Bowringer was the other part of that bullpen. And Scott Sanders, who I mentioned earlier, that was the glue of that bullpen. And in terms of guys kind of come up here and there who would occasionally make a couple starts, one name stands out, Matt Clement. You remember Matt Clement? Mm. I remember with the Cardinals? Cubs. Cubs. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, it was just interesting because I remember him. He was an all-star, the Red Sox. Oh wow, yeah. In like I think it was 2004, 2005. So Matt Clement was out of he, he was pitching a couple pitch starts here and there. He was out of the draft of the third round. 
that's a name I always think of. Like, just think of him and wherever him and Matt Garza, like middle eight or middle road starters. And also the we saw, unfortunately, was it was the end of the the kind of the ending of one Randy Myers. And Randy Myers mm. does that name sound familiar to anybody out there? Was part of the Nasty Boys bullpen, the <laughs> nineteen ninety bullpen that won the World Series, which that's another team I would love to talk about at some point. Yeah, I mean he was a big time closer for a long time. Yeah, I mean, he had 53 saves with the Cubs in 93. He had 38 saves, 45 saves. and even, Yeah, 45 the year before. Yeah, and then he just felt like he, 1998 would be his last year in professional baseball. He just lost it, and you thought that he would, would be kind of a good cement part of that bullpen. But, no, Randy Myers was a name that, for anybody that saw him out there, name not to be messed with. And it was just weird to think that, he wasn't even a part of this team in terms of just even like a, a and he also held, by the way, I forgot that he um he held the National League record for saves in a season at one point too. Yeah, fifty three. Yeah. I wonder if he got hurt. I mean to, to just be done at age thirty five, a year after having a one five one ERA and forty five saves. Yeah, he, he also yeah, and here's the thing too, he he only blew one save that season in nineteen ninety seven and that that year was his lowest ERA total of all time. And he was picked up. He the uh, yeah. Been, so yeah, yeah, it looks like shoulder injury and eventual rotator cuff surgery in '99. Yeah, ended his career. All yeah. Right. So that yeah, in terms of even like he took the Blue Jays in terms of where he in terms of um he was he signed originally with the Blue Jays, and they picked him up to see if they could get any life out of him because he struggled mightily. He had 28 saves for him. I think it was a three year deal. And they traded the Padres for him for a minor league prospect named Brian, uh, Brandon Lloyd. Um, and the Tigers, mm-hmm. or the Padres, <laughs> Tigers, the Padres already had a 12 game lead in the division. But at that point, like what they had with Myers to see if he could solidify any part of the bullpen, he has 6.2 ERA. And he was charged with the only, his, like, just, he didn't appear in the division series. He did pitch in four games in the NLCS, but. That was it, and then he just, yeah, he eventually would never. Yeah, he was only, he ended up making a comeback in two thousand one with AAA Tacoma. That was it. So he started a nonprofit though. It's pretty cool. But anyway, that yeah, and, and he also remember him. He was part of the eighty six Mets too. So there you go. Yeah, but he was promoted. He was just a bit player at that point for him. But so that bullpen would carry him through, and that rotation would carry him through, and it was a big reason why they went even that far. And what I love about the National League at the time, Chris, was any team that came out of the National League that wasn't Atlanta mm-hmm. it was almost like you knew full well that they were going to get serviced up by the Yankees. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. And for all the all the hype about the Braves and all that, yada, 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 and rightfully so, New York was such a – you know, it was so good. It, was, it didn't matter. It didn't matter what happened. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's one of those things where it – because they, New York, obviously they won in '96, and they looked like a team of that, you know, of destiny. And then '97 was just kind of a funky year with the Marlins and the uh, and the Indians. And so '98 was really they're like, okay, we're here for real. And then obviously they won the next two series too. But yeah, it was '98 was the year for the for the Yankees to really establish themselves as dominant. And what what's interesting too, what the, the the genesis about this team that would that kind of started this whole whole situation was the 1993 fire sale. I mean, if you think about it this way, it was it was the aftermath of what 
in terms of what Randy Smith, like, it was a who was involved with that? Was like like Joe Carter and Fred McGriff, or who do they have in '93? It wasn't Joe Carter, obviously. No, it was. Did they ever have Joe Carter? <laughs> I, I think it was at Roberto. So yeah, here's here's what they they had to trade Roberto so, Alomar. Yeah. So what happened was, is, here's the thing about that 1993 team, which is how far they came along really quickly behind that. They so never, oh yeah, they had Joe Carter for one year. Sorry. Yeah. No, it's okay. They had that was a year that they were able they weren't able to sign second round draft pick Ty Helton. Mm. So, which was interesting enough, but and he went off to play football at uh, went Tennessee. He bought, yeah, that, yeah, that's right. He played football at Tennessee. He was a quarterback there, but it was just they traded Tony. I mean, Tony Fernandez to the Mets mm-hmm. for Wally Whitehurst, DJ Dozier. Oh, DJ Dozier. Yep, the uh, another big time prospect on the according to my baseball cards. Wasn't DJ Dozier a football player too? Yes, he was. Yeah, that was the guy who was drafted by the Tigers in the 18th round of the 83 draft, mm-hmm. and he ended up going to Penn State. So that was that was that DJ Dozer. Then they they traded Darren Jackson, the Blue Jays, for Derek Bell, but um, they also got class action class action lawsuit against the Padres for ticket holders because they were trading away their talent. So that, but <laughs> yeah, here's the thing: how bad it was. Joe McElvain resigned as general manager, was then replaced by Randy Smith. And that was days before that was days before that was right before his thirtieth birthday. That was when he was become the GM. Um and he essentially you gotta feel bad for Randy Smith because he was also following orders that he had to follow orders in Detroit with Mike Illich just to cut salary. They traded Gary yeah. Sheffield and Rich Rodriguez to Florida. We just talked about that a little earlier. Benito and, Santiago. And and that was the same year, Chris, by the way, that Sheffield's flirting with the triple crown. Oh God, I forgot about that. Yeah, he was having a really good year, and then that was Fred McGriff who got traded. Melvin, they they traded for they traded the Atlanta for three prospects, one being Melvin Nieves. So again, mm-hmm. one day Atlanta is apparently, I guess Randy Smith asked for Ryan Klesko, according to this article that I found here on Fangraphs, but that didn't happen, and yeah, it was just it was just all that trading. That happened, but it so Randy Smith with a fire sale kind of led to some of the pieces there with um Quilo Veras. That's how they ended up that. So Randy Smith, thank you for that. And but Warner, the owner, would not spend the money on Troy Glaus, which ended up biting the Tigers in the ass in the nineteen ninety seven draft for Man Anderson. Oof. There you go. Thank you, mm-hmm. Harris Fulmer, for that reminder about that because he reminded me of that. But anywho, so yeah, there we go. The Padres were able to take away from a fire sale and able to look Kevin Towers did a hell of a job recovering from wherever the hell Randy Smith was trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, You know, he he traded his way into a, into a world series, which is impressive. Yeah. But But, yeah, uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of fun to go back and look at that, that team. Cause again, you know, it's fun to look back at uh, championship teams. You know, we did 86 Mets, uh, but it's also sometimes look at the teams that just couldn't quite do it. Cause those are the ones we forget. Yeah, I mean, and really, what I like about I like about this Padres too. What I like about this Padres team too, even in the era of heavy in terms of like just in terms of home run power and offensive crazy numbers, they were a good old fashioned just pitching team. It was in terms of like offense, they weren't they weren't going to hit you over the head, but man, they were going to pitch you to death. So, yeah, 
No, and uh, as you said, like Sterling Hitchcock pitched uh, the best baseball of his life in that postseason. It was kind of wild. Yeah, and then he, I, I, he earned his money that day, so. Yeah. yeah. Crafty he always had a good name, too. Yeah. Sterling? And, Sterling? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a ticket. So thanks so much for listening to Tigers SRD on the Tiger Minor League Report Network. The mock draft stuff, by the way, Chris, talk a little bit about that before we get out of here, the the, the amount of work, and, and just talk about <laughs> the, the whole process behind it. Well, you know, yeah, it's incredibly nerdy. It's something that, uh, uh, I don't know, six years, seven years ago when I started writing with Tigestown, we would cover the draft. I, I had, you know, I'd always followed the draft a little bit, and so one year I was just like, we were predicting who the Tigers would take in the first round. And I'm like, and I did that. And then I added a bunch of players that I thought they might take later. Uh, and so the next year I'm like, you know what, let's just go all the way to 40 rounds. Cause it was absurd. It's something nobody in their right mind does because you, you obviously can't predict that sort of thing and you don't have the sources. And, but it was something fun that I did several years. And then, and then I was going to do it this year. Uh, if the Tigers had 40 rounds, just cause it's, it's fun for me to dig through and try to find, really uh you know under the radar players who are in like division three but since there's only five rounds i was like well what what can i do well, i can do a full five round mock draft because i've seen you know you see nfl people do that sometimes just do seven rounds what the hell go for it so it's like all right i, I can do that and i don't know i started it maybe five weeks ago maybe longer i don't know actually i don't remember when i started it but uh what was a bummer was it was i really didn't start until like the fourth round is when I really started linking videos and tweets for every player. So I think that that's probably the most useful thing out of the whole mock draft. If you care to look at it is, is you can go through and I mentioned like, you know, so-and-so throws 94 to 96 and I'll have, I'll, I'll link a clip to him throwing 96 or to a tweet of somebody seeing him throw 96. Just, I don't know. It felt like I can do that on our website. So I should, I should show my work, I guess. And then that was, I was trying to, and also trying to, make it very clear that it's not really my work. It's all those guys who are out there taking these videos, but I spent a hell of a lot of time <laughs> scouring the internet, looking for everything. So I don't know. And I did my best to, to kind of mimic what I think certain teams will do in the draft. And obviously I'm going to be way wrong on a ton of stuff. I already, like, like I said, I started a long time ago. So by the time I was in like the fourth round, I already hated a bunch of the picks I made. I'm like, Oh, that guy's way too late. That guy's way too early. I, I, but I didn't go back and change much. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think I captured some teams pretty well. Like I have uh, the Rays. I have them taking two different players who are two-way players, which they, they seem to be the team most interested in doing that, you know. Do I have two two players or maybe just one? But, um, yeah, stuff like that. So you read. There's usually about 150, 200 words on every player. And I, I if you just care about the Tigers, there's – I have there are six six players we, we, with Torkelson, C.J. Van Eck from Florida State. I had him spending big money on Jared Jones, a, uh, a high school pitcher out of California, who is like kind of undersized but has one of the the biggest arms in the draft. He's like he'll touch 98, 99. He's got a really good changeup too. Um, it was interesting. I, I kind of settled in on him because he was recruited to USC by Dan Hubbs who is now, you know, the Tigers head of pitching, whatever. I don't know what, what his proper title the, is the now. Director of Pitch Development Strategies or something like that. Yeah. Um, and that's just a shot in the dark, you know, like, hey, he knows the guy. Maybe he can vouch for him. Then I 
then I think I was telling you guys, you know, I'm deep into the fifth round when I realize, like, oh, wait a minute. I actually, I, I recorded these old high school all-star baseball games last year, and I was back watching one. And they're like, yeah, he's related to Randy Flores. And I look up and I'm like, damn it, Randy Flores is the scouting director for the Cardinals. Like, if they believe in this kid at all, he's going to the Cardinals. But, oh, well, whatever. So, I, I it really, it's just kind of like a general guideline. I think the Tigers are going to spend money on, big money on one player in this draft. Because they're going to have Torkelson, the, the slot value for Torkelson is like $8.5 million. And, uh. Scott Boris will probably have him sign for slightly more than Adley Rushman signed for last year. You know, you always got to push it up a little bit, which would be like 8.15 million. So the Tigers are going to save 350 million there. So they're going to have some more money to spend. And it just seems like, I know everybody talks about, Oh, they're so, so pitching heavy, but they really don't have any pitching prospects below double a. I mean, there are a couple interesting guys for sure, but none of them look like for sure future big leaguers or interesting future big leaguers. So they need to start rebuilding that depth, and they need to get hitters too. So, yeah, I ended up having them take uh, three pitchers. I think I, I had Parker Shavers, a, a center fielder from Coastal Carolina. I had them take him in the uh, in the third round, which is you know part part of it's that Carolina connection that you've you've talked about. But I do think that they in a, in a short draft they're going to want to try to target guys up the middle, so a center fielder, a shortstop, a catcher, one of those three. And then I have them finishing the in the fifth round with Jack Blomgren the shortstop for Michigan who may may or may not go in the five rounds. There's a chance he doesn't because he's kind of, he's not much of a, a, a big time hitter, but I, like, again, I'm trying to reflect what the Tigers seem to have done in the past. You know, the catchers or the, the shortstops they take in the draft are usually the Brandon Loy's of the world or Danny worth or whatever, you know, guys who can play defense, but can't hit a ton. So anyway, yeah, I, I went through and tried to do that for every team. And toward the end, I've just like taken names and thrown them in there. Like, yeah, that works. Like a dartboard. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know, I was trying to. I went through and I did it all. I, I tried to fit it all within the, the slot bonuses, the bonus system, because I went and figured out that there were four teams that hadn't hadn't gone over their their like stated slot bonus pool in the last two seasons. So those are the only four teams that I had not go over this year. It was the uh, the Rays, the Mariners, the Twins, and the Rockies. So uh, to you know, to make things work, I was finding these random seniors, and, and some of that stuff was very hard. Uh, and I learned a lot of things doing this. I, I I'm very appreciative of Grand Canyon University because they have on YouTube they have videos of all their games this year, so I could just go through and find clips of players. I found myself doing that a ton. There are people who uh, who go and put together just highlight reels of big time college baseball matchups over during the course of the season. So it was nice to be able to, to see that. And yeah. And then just doing it helped me come across some fun stories. I think I told you, uh, I even tweeted out today. There's a kid, uh, Drew Smith, who I first became aware of just earlier this year when I was doing the weekly draft updates, cause he had a monster opening. He had like seven RBIs in his first game of the year against Oklahoma state. So I was looking him up and he's, he's from Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, and he was playing, with Grand Canyon in Arizona, and I'm looking up, and his favorite team is the Detroit Tigers. I'm like, what the hell is that all about? And you know, you can go through his Twitter feed and you see highlights of Michigan basketball and stuff. I'm like, what is going on with this kid? So he's just a guy. Like, you know, if he gets drafted, cool. If not, maybe that's a guy you Tigers want to go target. <laughs> you know, second baseman who can hit a little bit. Get him for twenty thousand dollars if he's willing to sign. 
And then the last, uh, my Mr. Irrelevant was it was a cool story. I thought, a guy named a kid named Bailey Horn, who's a lefty uh, at Auburn. He's got really good stuff. I was watching him. He's, he's like 23, but it's one of those uh, really lively fastballs. He was like 94 and just seemed to jump on hitters. But he's from West Texas, which uh, and he was at a he was at McLennan Community College or something like that. But West Texas is where that I remember. I think it was the same day as the Boston Marathon bombing, that giant fertilizer plant exploded. Do you remember that? Yeah, I know. I know you're talking about. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, that was in the city of West Texas. In, in that fertilizer plant was literally 500 yards from where he played his high school baseball. They used the high school as like a triage place. So, so he was 15, I think, at the time. Or and, and so his high school team, they ended up winning the state championship that year. But they had to play their games on a little league field. But he was a guy uh, who went to, like I said, he went to community college and he was signed with Auburn and he blew out his elbow. But Auburn stuck with him, and he's kind of rough last year. But he was off to a really nice start this year, and so I don't know. I just thought, and and so I gave him to Houston with the end of the draft. It just felt like the sort of thing that was was you know as a local kid, he's older, so they don't have to pay him much, but he's still got some talent. And so I don't know. I, you know, I like I said, it's a super nerdy thing, but I put a hell of a lot of thought into it and a lot of work. And so if if people want to read it or if they don't, it's there. Like I said I hopefully people will come back around to it after the draft to see some of the players that were taken to see like, hey, what's this guy all about? It'll serve as a little bit of a, a minor scouting report, but it should. Yeah. If people, if people don't care, then that's fine. Uh, I'm going to try to do a supplement here. Uh, Cause there are, there are probably a hundred players who could have been drafted. I could have picked who I didn't. And it wouldn't shock me. I guess my goal <laughs> and I'll be keeping track of this because that's the nerdy sort of thing I do. I would like to get 75% of these players that I picked in there. I would like for 75% of them to be drafted. So 120. So that's the goal. We'll see. That would be. I mean, that would be awesome. I mean, like I said, you, every every year except I think last year you got one right on the money, or one or two on the money. So. <laughs> oh well, yeah. I mean, last year I, I got Riley Green. That was. Uh, I mean, that wasn't. It, it was kind of. I had done some sleuthing, and, and figured that out a couple of weeks before that the Tigers East uh, East Coast cross checker or whatever had known Riley Green for forever. Um. And the year before that, I got three exactly right. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm pretty sure I'll be getting Torkelson right this year. And just, you know, when you do 160 picks, I'm bound to get one or two other ones right, just pure dumb luck. But, uh, yeah, after that, you know, just like you said, throwing darts. Well, and you were talking about starting up earlier, and I did a – I was looking at the state of the minors. I did a, a two-part piece about looking at the state of the minors and what they look. Yeah. And look at the fact that, here they are, Jacko, uh, Jack, um, the Lofl- lefty. Yeah, the, the no Jacko uh, Loughlin. Loughlin. Yeah, yep. The he's out for the year. Mm-hmm. You have Adam Wolf, who is still. I mean, he wasn't that he wasn't that good when he was here, but Wolf is still figuring things out. Dean Myers mm-hmm. is officially back at their base, thanks to Can and John for coming through for that. By the way, Top, tip of the cap. Yeah. I mean, the, the only arm, so the arms that were in below double A last year, it's like Wilkel Hernandez and, and Elvin, Elvin Rodriguez, and then yeah, Carlos Guzman, who got hurt too. And then Kyder Montero or Keter Montero. Those are like the most interesting arms, but I mean, maybe Hugh Smith. But again, like none of those guys looks like a future rotation. So it's really, they need some, 
these people have the tendency to look at it like, yeah, the, the farm system is heavy and pitching up top, but you're going to need another wave of, of younger players to come through. You know, the, the best case scenario in the world ever is, is you know, these Mize Manning school will become Maddox, Glavin and Smoltz. You know, that's 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 the point zero zero one percent outcome. Right. But the Braves were able to continue winning those divisions forever because they kept bringing guys in. You know, it was like a Kent Merker or a Stanton or Woolers. You guys did to add to the bullpen. And then Lay, later on. Lightberg or John Rocker. Yeah. I mean, they, they kept bringing in. They kept drafting arms and kept bringing them up. It was is you, you can't stop because you have good depth now. So and, and really, that's the strength of this draft. This is one of the best college pitching drafts I've ever seen. Um. So it'll, it'll be really interesting to see what the Tigers do at that 38th pick because the first 37 picks are on the first day of the draft, and then that's the end of it. And then the next – they have the first pick the next day, which starts you know, uh, 5 p.m. the next day. So they have you know, from 11 p.m. or whatever to, uh, to the next day to figure out, and they have that extra money. So that, that – in my mock, I didn't have them going over slot there, but that would be the point where it might make sense for them to – you know, say one of the top high school players slips. They negotiate with them all night, and they, they work out a deal, and suddenly there you go. You got another impact talent. But there's there's no excuse for them to not come out of this with three, four good players. No. You're, and, and here's another thing, too. Like, you talk about, in terms of, they have some, at least, Tigers have a few bullpen arms. And Doc Hass, we saw Jason Foley was coming back. Either the caster, whether he's a prospect or not, I mean, the caster still rose his way up pretty quickly to the minors. It was cool to, 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 to not to cut you off, but uh, Ethan DeCaster was discussing pitching with Asa Lacey on Twitter the other day. It was kind of fun to, to watch it. They were talking about spin rights and things like that. It's like, oh, that's fun. Yeah, anyway, and, continue. No, he, and maybe you know he's one that maybe studies that kind of advanced – Metrics and the, the Tigers look. They, they're going to have to get some more starters, and and even with like the non-roster of invitees at twenty k. Look, the thing you can sell any of those prospects is simple: a chance to move up pretty quickly. And I think that 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 is the only thing that stands out above anything else between like the Yankees and Dodgers. And those teams are those teams are going to offer you the chance to play for a very explicit or a very awesome franchise. Don't get me wrong. Dodgers going to come calling with 20K. But then if you look at the situation, if you can go whatever the, whatever they're going to be, that whether it's Connecticut or West Michigan or wherever the hell is going to happen next year, that they're, that any pitching they get, they can get out of there would be awesome to add. And then the only, the only question is, I couldn't remember, did you have the Central Michigan kid, the infielder? Out, uh, Xavier Warren. Yeah, Xavier Warren. You had him going to uh, Washington, right? Or... No, I, I have him going to the Brewers, I That's, think, yeah. in the third round, and they took him as a catcher. Um, I had them taking Gage Workman as a shortstop and Xavier Warren as a, as a, as a catcher. It was fun. Uh, I think his dad found, you know, these parents, they, they search for their kids on Twitter. Yeah. And his dad found uh, found it and uh, retweeted it, and I was like, hey, good for them. Um, yeah, I have him going. I, he, I think he's definitely going to get drafted. Um I, I don't know. I, with the Brewers draft, I just kind of – there were a couple teams where I just let players fall to them. Like not necessarily let them fall, but figured the team like would just take whoever's the top of their board. So the Brewers were one of the teams I did that. The Indians are kind of well-known for taking young guys, so I took had them take a couple young young players. Uh, you, 
the picture I had them taking the fourth round, apparently a lot of people think he might even go much, much higher. So it's just one of those things, you know, you, you do 160 pound round mock, you're going to screw a whole bunch of stuff up. Dude, it, but, uh, no, yeah, now I'm mostly fascinated with, uh, like you touched on it, that, uh, anybody who goes undrafted is either going to go back to school or they're going to have to sign for up to $20,000. And so my thinking is, is that teams are probably just going to raid the local schools. Uh, I don't know why it just seems like the, the thing to do. So you go get the seniors on Michigan and Michigan state. There's a kid, it's a kid named Mo Hanley. He's a lefty out of Adrian who was into the mid nineties. Um, and, and he might even get drafted, but he's a guy like it would be super interesting if they could go land him. Uh, he would be like a top priority for me. He's kind of skinny, but he's interesting. Um, Does Wayne State have anybody this year again? I don't nothing anybody I know of. That's a question for like Brian Sikowski, you know, yeah. who's covered everything everywhere. I, you know, I don't know about these things until somebody else points it out. <laughs> yeah, I'm not out there beating the bushes. But uh, yeah, nothing anybody I know of. But uh, I don't know. There, there are a bunch of John Malcolm. Was a kid. Uh, he was like a you know, a, a big time, perfect game, Under Armour, All American type. He went to Vanderbilt and then transferred to, was it North Florida State or something like that? What is? Uh, I mean, look where what school? Anyway, he was in a junior college in Florida, and um, didn't play a whole lot. But I think he's technically draft eligible. It's kind of a he was a first baseman outfielder. He's from Country Day, from Detroit. He's I I don't know if he's uh, committed somewhere else now, but. It's probably a kid that won't sign for twenty grand, but it's another one I take a run at. You know, just just these guys trying to find guys who want to play for the Tigers because they root for the Tigers growing up. You know what I mean? You know, who I see. You know, it's funny is like a, a Tiger draft pick that, or maybe a guy that they. I'm not sure where if, if he's even a pro guy or anything, and I don't think he is. Is Chris Crabtree out of Duke? Chris Crabtree? Yeah, he's a lefty. Here, okay, here's why I think he's a perfect Tiger. Okay, he plays the infield. Mm-hmm. He's a junior, and he's like, coming from a, like the East Coast, so he's from Duke, mm-hmm. and just some guy that they could they could draft, and it would be right in the East Coast. Also, they have another guy in Duke who actually went to Detroit Catholic Central, and he is a catcher, left-handed catcher, but he's a sophomore right now, but he's not draft eligible. And I don't know anything about him either. Uh, I was trying to look him up as uh, Matt Stein. Steinsburn, or it's, I'm sorry, Stein, and then B-I-S-E-R. Hmm. I'm not sure of any, anything about him, but just I was just looking at their what they do in terms of, like, drafting a certain type mm-hmm. on the East Coast kind of thing. And yeah, um, he was actually highly regarded coming out of Catholic Central, by the way, as a catcher. Yeah, you know, that's what... It, for a couple of years, when I was doing those 40-rounders, I would try to find there, – there was a kid who went off to Georgetown to play catcher who they drafted out of high school, and he went off to Georgetown, and I thought they might take him. But, yeah, you never you never really know. It, it's With only five rounds, there's probably going to be a couple guys who get picked overall who everybody's like, huh? But I think most of these kids are going to be well-known. And the, the biggest mystery of all of this is, is knowing – what players are willing to sign for and how teams are going to do it. Like there are some teams that are talking about drafting guys, you know, like the first three rounds and then just shortchanging them hard and spending all their money in the fourth and fifth round to get better talent and basically telling the guys in the first three rounds, Hey, take it or leave it. If you don't, we'll just use 
because you get you get uh, compensation picks the next year, so you'll just use them in the next year. Um, so it's just yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be really hard to figure out. You know, that we'll be we'll see some guys signing in the first round who maybe are third round talents, but are willing to sign for much less to save money. And it's 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 gonna be the most unusual draft I think uh, we've ever seen. Although in my mock, I just pretended it was gonna be normal <laughs> for the most part. So that's probably a mistake on my part, but I didn't want to get too crazy. No, and I don't blame either. And also, too, to think about it, they're going to lose the development year. All the 2019 picks, yeah, you know, are going to lose a year of development. So you guys, the guys like Brian Packer, all these kind of, it's one of those things where, if you think about it in the grand scheme of things, too, the Tigers only have one guaranteed contract beyond the 2020 season. So yeah, Mickey, right? Yeah, Mickey, that's it. Well, I mean, I think that just means, yeah, I mean, that's that's everybody else's arbitration eligible, right? So, yeah. Um, I mean, that's what they've been waiting for, right? You get that uh, Zimmerman contract out the books and then, who knows, sell the team, uh, start spending again, and we'll see about that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is it's been a teardown for sure. Yeah, I and mean, the reason why, I mean, yeah, granted, the, the eligibility or, uh, or, or eligible, uh, eligible, but um, arbitration eligible, Matt Boyd, next year it's Matt Boyd, Fulmer, Norris. Yeah. And Jacoby Jones. So, yeah, that's right. Because this, well, yeah, I guess Nico wouldn't be eligible yet. This would be his third. Yeah, so it'd be year, year right? That, but he's yeah. not not full eligible till the year after that. Yeah, twenty twenty one. So, so think about, uh, so about this way, Chris. They've actually now it just it just occurred to me that really they're they're setting themselves up to where with the if they get, with this eighty two game schedule, if it happens. And they don't. They're not gonna. They're. They're gonna really ask for a raise. You know what I mean? Like they're not gonna. Well, you only played eighty two games. You only so. Yeah, I mean that 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 could get pretty contentious yeah. there. I, I think. Uh, yeah, boy, I didn't even think about that. That could be another ugly thing where I would hope the teams and players would would come to that in good faith and say, hey, you know, like I couldn't play any more games. What did you expect me to do? But I'm probably giving uh, teams too much credit. So, well, yeah. It, at this point, too, they can't even get math right. But we're on on that note. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it. We'll be back next week. We'll let you know what's going on in terms of there's some sort of update or not, and we'll keep it posted. And thanks again. We'll we'll talk to you soon.